All right, we've come this morning to the eighth chapter of Esther. I'm going to, I'm going to miss Esther. I've enjoyed, and I think particularly the, the side-by-side working through Esther and Judges at the same time has, has been uh, rich uh, to see the, the, the ways these, these themes overlap and reinforce one another. So this will be our second to last uh, lesson in the book of Esther. We'll finish next week with, with chapter 9 and then just those three or four verses of chapter, three verses, I guess, in chapter 10. So let's pray and ask, ask for the Lord to give us his help as we, we consider the eighth chapter here. Our Lord and our God, thank you for your infinite mercy towards sinners. We thank you for the revelation that you've given to us of your word. You've revealed yourself to us, and we pray with eyes that are opened by by your Spirit to understand and discern, even in the Old Covenant, we can see our Savior. Thank you that by your Spirit, by Christ's work, the veil has been lifted so that we can see you plainly and clearly, even under the Old Covenant. We we pray that you would illuminate this for us, give us understanding, give us a great encouragement of the hope that we have in Christ, a hope not only for today, but for eternity. Grant to us... uh, conviction of of the sin that remains in us. Help us to see uh, where our faith is weak, where our faith has been misplaced, uh, where we need to cling to the promises of Christ alone. We thank you for your word. We ask for your help as we study it together. Amen. Well, in November of of 1944, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, of course, famously the writer of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, wrote a letter to his son. And in this letter, he describes how he had coined a new term. He, he made up a word. He called it eucatastrophe. And, and it's, a, it's a strange word. He admits it's a strange word. But eucatastrophe means a good catastrophe. And you think, well, how in the world can a catastrophe be good? Well, listen to what he writes to his son. He says, I, I coined the word eucatastrophe, the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. And I was there led to the view that it produces its peculiar effect because it is a sudden glimpse of truth. Your whole nature chained in material cause and effect, the chain of death, feels a sudden relief as if a major limb out of joint had suddenly snapped back into place. It perceives that this is indeed how things really do work in the great world for which our nature is made. I love that. This eucatastrophe perceives that this is how things really do work in the great world in which our nature is made. And I concluded, he says, that by saying that the resurrection was the greatest eucatastrophe possible in the greatest fairy story, and it produces that essential emotion Christian joy, which produces tears, because it is qualitatively so like sorrow, because it comes from those very places where sorrow and joy are at one reconciled. I love that. Sorrow and joy are reconciled. Beginning beginning in chapter 8 of Esther, we we see a a grand example of what Tolkien called this eucatastrophe, this great reversal, this great turning. It's a good catastrophe. And this particular eucatastrophe begins, that begins here doesn't merely involve Esther, 
or even Esther and Mordecai, but, but all of the Jews. And, and the, the implications for this are beyond just their place and time. And we've got to remember, God is preserving the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3.15. He's preserving the holy seed through Israel, that ultimately from whom the Messiah would come. So I'm going to look at this in, in three key reversals that we see here in chapter 8. Three sort of component parts of this eucatastrophe. One is the, the standing of the Jews. The standing in their kingdom, in the kingdom of Ahasuerus, the Persian kingdom, this, their standing just immediately flips. It, ch- it changes almost in an instant. We also see their destiny change. They, they go from an order of condemnation to an order of execution on behalf of or for those who were persecuting them. And there's a reversal in their identity. There's a reversal in their identity. So here's what I want to do. I'm gonna, I want to go through and just consider it at, at, at face value here in the text. Those three things, their, their reversal in standing destiny identity. Then I want to go back through and look at this through the lens of the Christian experience. What This, this whole metaphor, or this, it's, it's an actual historical event, but, and yet it's also a metaphor. It, it, it's, a, it's a big pageant that shows to us ultimately something far greater that Christ accomplished in which our own identity, destiny, and standing is dramatically changed. So let's read the text. It's a short chapter. We'll read the text, and then we'll, we'll dive in. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman. Now, on that day, what day? Well, it's the same day Haman was hanged. On that day, the king gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan. On the, 30th, or the 23rd day, an edict was written, according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city 
to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day, throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all the peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And at every province and at every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. And the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's, let's think about this in the first place, the reversal of the standing that the Jews had in the Persian kingdom. And we see this, first of all, in the first couple of verses. I mean, here's Haman, who had this vast estate. He had much wealth. We saw that he was able to, to give a, a huge sum of money into the king's treasury earlier as, as a sort of you know, grease the skids to get his original edict passed or to get that approved by the king. He had a vast estate, and the king essentially hands the keys to Esther for all of that. I mean, what, what a reversal for her to see this, this vast inheritance where she was a, uh, essentially a peasant girl, Jewish girl, an outsider ethnically, socially, economically, cast into the king's harem. And, of course, we see the Lord had exalted her to king, but now it's even further than that. She has one of the greatest estates in all of Persia. Does that language of inheritance already kind of prick your attention? That something as dramatic is happening here, and something even more dramatic is being alluded to and pointed to. But also, the signet ring. And it's kind of hard for us to imagine this, because we, we don't deal in the same way with the kinds of symbols but this is like a presidential seal. This was something that, that, that was, had the weight of the king's own signature. So it was a, a, a ring that would have had a, a royal emblem in it, would have been pressed into hot wax and sealed on a legal document, making this an official, this is the official voice of the king himself. That, that ring is taken from Haman and given to Mordecai, Haman's arch enemy. So we see this, this sudden reversal of, of inheritance and dominion, but then also verses three through eight give us a picture of the kingly authority that God has, or that, that King Ahasuerus gives to these two Jewish nobodies. I mean, Mordecai was was a mid-level bureaucrat within the king's enterprise, but the Lord had bit by bit raised Mordecai to a high and lofty place, and now, highest of all, he owns the signet ring, and now he's authorized to use all of the royal resources, the royal, the royal mail service, which was their fast horses, and, and the king's own stationery, his own letterhead, his own ring, and issue this decree. Now, earlier in Israel's history, there was a godly barren woman named Hannah. And you'll remember this story. She's the mother of Samuel. 
But she wept before the Lord, and she called upon the Lord for a son. And we, we know Samuel was the fruit of the Lord hearing and answering her prayer. And listen to what she says as she goes back to the temple and goes back to dedicate Samuel to the Lord and do just as she said. He'd been weaned now, and she was going to, to give him permanently into the service of the Lord. Listen to what she says. In her song, in her prayer, she says, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set his world. Set the world. Hannah knew something about what Tolkien called a eucatastrophe. She understood this. I mean, viscerally, uh, emotionally, she had experienced the anguish of barrenness, and then from the ashes of her, her misery, the ashes of her, I mean, you remember when she went to pray the first time, the, 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 the priest thought she was drunk. She was so almost incoherent, and as she wept before the Lord. And now, all these years later, here's Mordecai, here's Esther, here's all the Jews experiencing just what Hannah had sung about. Literally, for Mordecai, going from ashes. He was mourning in sackcloth and ashes to wearing blue and white and purple robes and going through the city on behalf of the king, declaring this edict in Susa, the very place where Haman made a big deal of declaring the destruction of the Jews. They, were, they went from being poor and in the dust, quite literally, to sitting with princes, conscripted into the harem of a pagan king and now inheriting a seat of honor. I mean, this, is, this is what the Lord does with his people. So th- there's that first is that, that reversal of standing within this pagan kingdom. But that, that reversal of standing with a kingdom, hold on to that, because that's going to point us to something far greater down the road. But we see also in the next section, the reversal of destiny, the reversal of destiny. But let's go back to chapter 3. Turn back to chapter 3. I want you to see these two edicts sort of side by side. In chapter 3, this is, this is Haman, in all of his pride, has orchestrated his plot to kill not only Mordecai, not only to revenge himself against his own perceived enemy with Mordecai, but, but I'm going to take out all of Mordecai's kinsmen. Verse 12, the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Now, and I won't reread it, but in in chapter 8, it's almost word for word. There, there is almost a perfect symmetry between these decrees, and that was not accidental. It's not accidental. 
Notice a few things. The language of the two edicts, again, is, is almost exactly the same. It's, it's an intentional parallel. Even women and children are included. Does that disturb you? I mean, on one level, it should. But on the other hand, there's a necessity that this be an exact parallel to Haman's decree, that it include the same language. Now, and this is why, because remember, a Persian order from the king was irrevocable. But even King Ahasuerus, as he's giving the authorization to Mordecai and to Esther, go and write whatever pleases you with respect to the Jews. But remember, the thing that has been written and sealed by the king cannot be reversed. They have to figure out a way to, to neutralize it, to render it useless, but they can't be legally reversed. So all those uh, precepts, all the, the, the specifics of the edict have to be matched up so that, in a sense, every point can be neutralized and flipped. Jews were not ordered or even permitted to kill or plunder whomever they wish, but only such armed forces that attacked them. And that's a key part of this. This was not an order for just vengeance. This was not an order just to go and, and, and indulge in bloodshed. If you are attacked, the specific armed forces that come and attack you, be ready, and you have now the authority by the king of Persia to defend yourself and preemptively to take out those who are going to destroy you. See, the, here's the thing. The Jews were all condemned, and they were under an irreversible decree of the king. They, they were condemned to mass execution that would include even women and little ones. But now, suddenly their destiny turns. The tables are turned, and Mordecai is given full authority by the king not to undo the order of execution. And this is, this is, this is an important point. They can't undo that, but instead the Jews were authorized to destroy the destroyers. Now again, as we look forward, we will find another people under an irrevocable order of execution. That order can't be lifted because of God's holiness. But the destroyer had to be destroyed. God reversed not only their standing in the kingdom, but the entire destiny as a people. Now look down at verse 17. Chapter 8, verse 17. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. Look at this. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. I mean, what, if that's not a eucatastrophe, I don't know what is. I mean, here they were in fear for their own lives just to be a Jew. Remember, Esther wrestled with whether or not to betray her own identity to her own husband who was the king. Just to be a Jew or a Jewess was to put your life in jeopardy. Now, other people who were confidently decidedly, definitively not Jews just yesterday, now want to be Jewish because that's the place of greatest safety. That's the, great, that's the place of deliverance. That's the place of legal protection. And again, two things that we notice here. No longer was any Jew tempted to hide their ethnic identity. No longer was that a temptation. Remember, the, the theme that we've seen throughout Esther is this, this theme of, of concealment, this theme of hidden things. 
And now all things are being revealed. All things are being exposed. Now, where have we read that before? One day, even what was whispered in secret will be shouted from the housetops. We see many among the peoples of the land sought to become Jews. We, we, this is a reversal with respect to their identity, how they were viewed, how, how their personhood was perceived in the kingdom. And, and we can also look at this as a reversal of, of fear. The Jews just, just, again, yesterday had feared Haman, had feared his edict. They feared the coming judgment that was to come just 11 months later. And now the Persian people are the ones who yesterday seemed to fear no one, and now they're so fearful of being counted not a Jew that they want to identify as being a Jew for safety's sake. The Jews had feared Haman and his edict. Now they feared no one but God himself. And all in what must have seemed like just, just an instant, everything changes. This is the eucatastrophe. This is the good catastrophe. Well, Tolkien doesn't just write about this in the abstract. He, he certainly employs this literary device in his, in his stories. So if you look at the very end of The Return of the King, in Tolkien's, uh, the, the, the close of the trilogy, Samwise Gamgee, who my kids will tell you that's my favorite character. Uh, I love Sam. But so the, the, the ring has been destroyed. Sam wakes up thinking his, all of his friends were dead. And he wakes up and he sees Gandalf. He sees his other friends and he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? Is everything sad going to come untrue? For the Jews, their sudden reversal, where God had made the sad things come untrue, is right here before them. Now, with a new standing, a new destiny, a new identity. And, and these, these themes, these, these, this pattern of reversal is not confined to Esther. We can see this throughout. God's redemptive story with his people. It's, re- it's replayed over and over and over again. Or just, it seems, the brink of destruction by their own folly, by their own sin, and yet God intervenes, sometimes in surprising ways, sometimes even comical ways. Sometimes in ways that, that we think, ooh, in polite company, I wouldn't admit that, that that's the way it happened. In fact, the biggest reversal, the biggest eucatastrophe, as, as Tolkien alluded to in the letter to his son, is the resurrection itself. Jesus of Nazareth was, was betrayed into the hands of sinful men. He was crucified. He was dead. He was buried. All hope seemed lost. I mean, his disciples fled. I mean, his enemies openly sneered and mocked at him. Darkness covered the earth. The, the tomb, he's laid in a borrowed tomb. The, 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 the stone is rolled in front. It's sealed. It's got guards placed in front of it. This awe-inspiring public ministry, the miracles, the, the, the healings, the teaching of one who taught with authority, not like the scribes, all that just seems to have come to an abrupt end. And, and we can flatten out the humanity sometimes of, of the disciples and others who walked closely. We think, well, because we know how the story ends, and we, we don't know that those agonizing hours between the time of his body being pulled from the cross and laid in the tomb and the news coming Sunday morning, and we see that some of them, even a week, another Sunday had gone by before they were even believing. Thomas didn't believe for another week. And, and, and we can flatten that out and lose that sense of, of, of 
of, of distress and anguish, not knowing our God's promise is true. This is a catastrophe. Can anything good come from it? Three days later, of course, Christ rises victorious from the tomb. I mean, surprising his disciples, frankly, not because he, he told them, but they, they were thick-headed like we are. Uh, they were slow to understand like we are. And, and suddenly, now those who, who believe in him, he has given a reversal of identity, a, a reversal of destiny, a reversal of standing in his kingdom. Not a pagan kingdom, but his kingdom. And I was thinking about this. Uh, in fact, it just came to me this morning. I was was kind of reviewing some of this, and oh, this is—I hadn't thought about this. The, the prophet Hosea, you know the story. Hosea, as a prophet, is told to take a wife of, of whoredom. That's how the Lord describes it: take a wife of whoredom, and her name was Gomer. And she conceived the first son that she bore was was named Jezreel. Then she bear she bears a, a daughter. And the Lord tells her, named that girl, no mercy. Because, the Lord says, I will have no more mercy on the house of Israel. Then she bears a son. We're told in in Hosea chapter 1, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name. Not my people. Can you imagine giving birth to a son? And the Lord says, call him, lo ami, not my people. For you are not my people, and I'm not your God. I mean, are are there more tragic words that could be heard by anyone? I'm not your God. I mean, many of us have have, have experienced human rejection, where someone says, you're not my friend. Or, "I I don't want to be around you. And that stings, that hurts. How much more of God himself says, you are not mine? Well, Peter picks up on this theme. Peter understands the eucatastrophe that's happened. Peter understands the reversal of identity that's taken place. In 1 Peter 2, Peter says, listen to this, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now listen to this, I think you'll understand, Peter's been reading Hosea. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, because of the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and session of Christ, now those who were rebels, those who were outside of the covenant, those who had, had willfully transgressed, are now, God says, those are mine. Those are the ones whom, on whom I delight to show mercy. And, and we could spend the next months, I mean, without exaggeration, going through the New Testament and looking at these various passages on this, this new identity, the reversal of identity, those who were dead in trespasses and sins, now made alive in Christ. And that reversal that happens. But we see not only do we have a reversal of identity in Christ, we have a reversal in, in destiny. I mean, the Jews under the king, under the order of King Ahasuerus were condemned to die. Now, they had a specific date given to them. 
they knew. They could put it on the calendar and know. This is almost like the, the, those Christmas calendars where you put the X and, okay, we're counting down the days. But this was not a happy calendar. This was looking, anticipating the date of their sure destruction. It was an irrevocable decree of destruction. And it was not from just an earthly king. See, King Ahasuerus is a, is a type. He serves as a type of, of God the Father who has placed all mankind under an order of execution, under an order of judgment. Now, we don't know the date. We don't know. Even our our Lord said, according to his humanity, he didn't know the day of God's judgment, the day when Christ would return. But we know that day is fixed. It is certain it will come like a thief in the night. And this was justly God had placed mankind under a, a decree of death and destruction because... Not because of someone else's uh, beef with us, or not because someone was mad at someone we know, but because of our own sin. God has placed us under an irrevocable decree. That decree cannot be undone. His justice, his holiness will not allow man's sin to be ignored. That decree of destruction can't just be, turned, can't just be torn up and thrown away as if God changed his mind. But Christ comes and satisfies the divine wrath as he hung on the cross, so that there is not one drop of the cup of divine wrath left for us to drink. If you're in Christ, it's it's all been consumed by Christ himself. You now, if you're in Christ, have a new destiny. No longer is there a threat of death and punishment hanging over you. That's why Paul opens with that... Romans chapter 8, there is now, therefore, no condemnation. And, and that word now means both already, there is already, in this present time, we're not waiting for this order to be lifted. The order of execution has been lifted. It's been, or it's not been lifted, it's been satisfied in Christ. But it also means that that time is, 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 is here, now in this present moment. It also means Finally, there is now now finally no condemnation. Because all the time under the Old Covenant, and Brother Jason will unpack this more in the sermon today, but but under the Old Covenant, they they, they could not see this this order of execution, this order of condemnation under which they lived. All these burdens of the laws pointed every day to their uncleanness, every day to the sin that remained, and there was nothing the law could do to take that sin away. Later on in Romans 8, of course, we love this passage. In verse 18, Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope 
for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. See this reversal of destiny. God has transformed the sufferings of this present world into a hope that Paul says is not even worthy of comparison. These two don't even deserve to be side by side. The glory, the inheritance, even the authority that is stored up for us, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, as Peter puts it, is ours. That's where our hope rests. And so this, the eucatastrophe of Esther points us to this greater reversal. Those found in, in Christ, there is a reversal of identity. There's a reversal of, of destiny. But also, we saw, we saw in the Jews, their, their new standing in the kingdom of Persia points us to something far greater. It's a new standing in the kingdom of God. And this is one of the Paul's opening points in, when he wrote to the Colossian church. And I, and I love this. You know, Colossae was a place, it wasn't even on some of the Roman maps. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a you're on your way to nowhere to get to Colossae. And yet, to the Colossian Christians, Paul was able to say to them, from the day we first heard, uh, he's talking about their faith, he said, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with all of the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you, listen to this, has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. I mean, there is no, there's no greater uh, transfer. There's no greater flipping of the script with respect to our, our citizenship than this. To be taken out of the kingdom of darkness, to be plucked out and, and be transferred into the kingdom of God's own son. Uh, so we, we see the, the joy and the celebration of the Jews just to see that, that others even want to be, other people all of a sudden, their neighbors want to be part of them. We want to be Jews. That doesn't even begin to compare to the citizenship that God has granted to us in and through Christ in the kingdom of God. You know, so the Jews in Esther's day, in Mordecai's day, they, they rightly rejoiced at their sudden deliverance. But how much more ought we, those who have been reconciled to God through faith in Christ, how much more ought we to rejoice at what we've been given? Now, you know, one of the things working through something like this, it can be a little um, frustrating because there's, there's far more on the editing room floor uh, of a lesson like this than, than I get to present. We, we, I mean, there's just not enough time to go through the New Testament and discover the, the full scope. Of, of the effects of this good catastrophe that we share in Christ. See how everything has been reversed for us. The, the, the new identity, this reversal of identity, the reversal of destiny, the reversal of our standing in, in God's kingdom. But as you, as you read the scriptures on your own, as, as you hear, are hearing the word of God, as you're studying through these things, practice tuning your ears to sort of look for and hear these wonderful themes, these themes of reversal, where, and it's throughout the New Testament, it's, it's everywhere, the apostles understood this, and they're showing, this is what you once were, now look at the reversal, here's the new image, 
And so we have that those themes of reversal throughout this eucatastrophe. Just, just and again, Tolkien's made up of words describing what he saw as 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 the greatest truth in creation. That this is what God has accomplished in and through His Son. Tolkien says the uniquely Christian eucatastrophe produces that essential emotion, Christian joy, which produces tears because it is qualitatively so like sorrow. Because it comes from those places where joy and sorrow are at one reconciled. And surely you've, you've experienced this in certain ways, where, where there's, there's, a, there's a, a labor and delivery, and it's stressful, and there's, there's the, the, the mom's life is in jeopardy, and the baby's heartbeat can't be found, and then all of a sudden, here's a healthy boy, here's a healthy girl. And, and, the, and the joy that, that comes is, is, is intensified and amplified because of the darkness you've just experienced. There's a flip there. Well, infinitely bigger than this is the joy that comes when the Lord has brought his people through intense suffering and darkness. And then, as it were, he turns the light on. I mean, look back at verse 16. The Jews had light and gladness and joy, and honor. I mean, words fail to describe the euphoria that must have broken out. I mean, just every street. I mean, we, we, we see this kind of euphoria with a, you know, a sports team celebrating a championship or something, but those things just are so insignificant in light of, of eternity. But the Jews were not even necessarily contemplating eternity at this point. Just their lives were spared. Their families were spared. I mean, Again, we, we tend to flatten this thing out and almost dehumanize sometimes the characters that we find in the Old Testament, well, in the New Testament too, for that matter. But, I mean, imagine, you're, you're, you're a father. You've got several children. You've got a wife for whom you're responsible. And, and this, you're just, you go to work every day, but this order of excommunication, or the order of execution is just hanging over you. And then all of a sudden, one day, this new order comes. Here's, we hear the galloping of the king's horses coming into the village again. And here's the herald of the king, and we're going, oh, no, what is, has this state been moved up? What's going on now? And you hear it. You, you, you stop to listen, bracing yourself for more bad news. You're a mom there with your kids. You're just trying to get through the day, trying to get supper on the table, trying to get those things done. And then the, 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 the king's order comes, and you're thinking, how am I going to tell our children? How am I going to tell them what's happening next? And then the word comes take up arms, go and to destroy the destroyers, plunder their goods. And the Jews had light and gladness and joy, honor. David Strain in his commentary on this passage says, if the Jews of Persia could rejoice at an earthly promise of political and military victory, where is our joy at the sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life that is ours, sealed by Christ's blood, not a tyrant's signet ring, and guaranteed by his empty tomb. Does your Christian life reflect a deep awareness of the glory to follow, so sure and certain, kept in heaven for you, such that you cannot help but thrill at the goodness and grace of God, and rejoice in his promises, you can measure your embrace of the promise of future glory by the practice of present joy. Ouch. You can measure 
your embrace of the promise of future glory by the practice of present joy. So is everything sad going to come untrue? Yes, Samwise. Everything sad is going to come untrue. Revelation 21, I'll close with this. Verse 1. John, his vision says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Isn't that marvelous? So we find in Esther, it's a wonderful story, and we ought to rejoice along with the Jews. I mean, we, we ought to rejoice in this. This is God's deliverance of them. He spared their lives. We ought to rejoice in that. But we also ought to see this points us forward to something far greater than they could even imagine. God has preserved his seed. And there's something here that I, I passed over, but we've dealt with it in, in, in a previous lesson. Often when Haman is referred to, he's referred to as Haman the Agagite. And that's significant. You remember why? Remember why? Saul was supposed to kill Agag and all of his offspring. This points us to, and the, and the editor here, the author of, of the human author of Esther, through the Holy Spirit, is pointing us to the fact that there's a bigger conflict here. This isn't just one random guy who got sideways with Mordecai and he's, and he's stirring up trouble. There's, there's, a, there's a cosmic conflict that often escapes our immediate notice. Haman the Agagite is pointing us to a greater enemy, but who's already been destroyed. Now, the order of, of, of execution hasn't just gone away. Satan has been bound. Christ has come in and plundered the strong man's house. He's bound him and plundered his house. But the order of, of execution for those who are dead in sins hasn't just gone away. But it can be point by point by point offset and the destroyer destroyed in Christ. That's where we find the answer. We don't look to God to just overlook sin. We don't look to God to just say, well, I'll just ignore the rebellion of mankind. can't do that. His justice would not allow that. We look to Christ on whom that wrath has been poured out, and we seek to find ourselves in him so that wrath is abated. I'll close with that. Any any. Questions or other things? Yeah, Andrew. There's no confusion. Yeah. Amen. And, he, and, and apparently, even among the pagans, there's not really confusion. There was some, we know where safety is now. We want to be Jews. Yeah. Matthew.
<laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And, and that everything is, is, is we, we know that God works all, to, all things together for good. We know that. And as I said last week, we, we, don't con we don't believe from the scriptures that God works all good things together for good. He works all things together for good. But the other part of that sometimes that we think about is there's not one providence. It's just sort of, it's kind of like when you, you, you work on a car, you've done some repair, and you get to the end, it's like, ooh, I got these extra bolts. I don't know what to do with those. There's no, in God's providence, there's nothing like that. There's no extra things. So when we read in the Old Testament, sometimes we don't know what those are. Why are we being told that? Uh, why is this, why are we being emphasized? Why is it being emphasized to us? that the law of the Persians is, is, is irrevocable. Well, we may not know that right away. But then later on we discover, oh, that points us to a greater kingly edict, an, eternally, uh, an eternal king who's made an edict of execution that cannot be undone. There's no wasted providence. Well, let's pray. We'll take a short, short break for our worship. Father, you are so good to us, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for these. You so carefully lay out to us in the New Testament in, in, in very clear and orderly ways that we can, we can outline and, and, and have tight, orderly theological uh, concepts. And then in other places, you give us these grand stories that provoke our imaginations, that provoke our sense of wonder, that provoke our sense of awe at our God. And we thank you that you've made yourself known to us in various ways, that you not only seek to, to fill our minds, but to stir our hearts. And we pray that as, as we grow in our understanding of our God, of his infinite wisdom and love and mercy towards his people, his infinite wrath and justice, that we will see how all these things are reconciled in the person and work of Christ. And that we'll find our salvation in him. And that we, like pagans of old, would, would seek to be Jews, would seek to be true Jews by faith in the, in the Messiah, in the Christ whom you sent. Uh, we thank you for him. We thank you for his work. Uh, we thank you for the surety in the, that we have in his promises. Amen.